me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, and and while we're on the baby boomer getting old thing, so I have a pair of glasses I left in the pulpit this morning and a pair of glasses I have in my pocket. At least I don't have one on top of my head while I'm putting another pair on, like some people do in my house. I like to do, uh, I usually do, I tend to do near the beginning of the year, uh, what I would sort of say reminder kinds of messages, uh, like Peter says and Paul says, uh, sometimes it's good to remind us of things. And so uh, two, I guess three weeks ago, I did praying together. And then a couple of weeks ago, speaking the word together to try and just uh, help us see the centrality of those two things for the life of the church, that we are to be committed to prayer and the word and and seek to cultivate that. As uh, uh, I've got tonight and then Lord willing, next Sunday night, we're actually gonna have Austin Hunt here to present his ministry. Graduate of our seminary is going to Zambia. He'll be here next Sunday night. And so then the week after that, I've got plans for a, not a 21, 22 message series like last year, uh, but a longer series working through some things. And so I thought tonight uh, might be a good time to remind us of some basic uh, thinking about the task that Jesus has given to us uh, with regard to the mission. And Romans 15 is one of my favorite passages to really sort of zero in on that because it, it helps us see from uh, what I would say the model missionary, the Apostle Paul, the way he thought about the task, but also uh, how that task was to be carried out or, or fulfilled. And so uh, what I wanna do tonight is just sort of walk through that a little bit uh, from, from uh, a few different angles, but the overarching one is for us as a part of a local assembly, how should we be thinking about missions and and what it is that that Jesus has entrusted us to do and and how we should keep our mindset on that, what it ought to be, so we never lose sight of the 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 work. So I want to start in verse uh, verses eight and nine with just a reminder about the task itself based on, on Christ and his mission. Look at verse eight of Romans 15. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. So there's two statements here about Christ becoming a servant. On one hand, it was to the circumcision, that's to the the Jewish people, right? He came on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So all that that the Old Testament contains as promises to the patriarchs, right? The Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, all of those promises that were made, Christ came on behalf of the truth of those things to fulfill them. He was the fulfillment of all that God had promised to the people of Israel. But then verse nine turns and talks about 
his service for the Gentiles, and that is, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. And, and Paul's writing this after having explained already earlier in the book, uh, through chapters 9 through 11, about how God has set Israel aside for the present time, and he's actually calling out a people from among the Gentiles, the, those who had not been given those patriarch promises now were in fact receiving the promises of the gospel, that God had something for the nations that hadn't, uh, hadn't been fully revealed in the Old Testament. There was clearly indications in the Old Testament that the Messiah would have benefit for the nations. What, what we didn't know was that God was actually going to put Israel to the side in order to form a new people, the church. And, and so that we would be who were, Ephesians 2 says, people who were aliens and strangers from the covenant are now brought near, right? We're made God's household. We actually have access to God through Christ by the Spirit. And, and so verse nine is really in some ways a, a, a sort of compressed statement about what Christ's mission toward the Gentiles is and from which Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, go make disciples of all the nations. And the word translated nations in Matthew 28 is this word. So that the Gentiles, the nations would glorify God for his mercy. And, and so verse nine talks about the foundation of missions being the mercy of God, glorify God for his mercy. People who had no right to claim it, God has now extended mercy to them. Uh, you and I uh, rebelled against God, are justly condemned because of that, and, and God has extended to us mercy in the offer of the gospel. He's had compassion on us and provided a way of salvation through his son. Christ came to be a servant of the Gentiles so that they would glorify God for his mercy. And so the foundation is his mercy. The focus of it is that we would glorify God. And again, in, in context of Romans, you should hear the echo of Romans 1, right? When, when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were thankful, right? Romans 1 tracks the, the rebellion of man and the turning of the nations away from God, and it was refusing to give him the glory that he was due as the creator. But the mission is that Gentiles would now glorify God for having showed mercy. They would come back instead of being false worshipers, worshipers of things that have been made, they become worshipers of the true and living God. And Jesus had anticipated that in the Gospel of John when he said, the hour is coming when, when, when true worshipers will worship him in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Right? That, that God is gathering up worshipers from the Gentiles to glorify him for his mercy. And that leads us to that word Gentiles because that's 
the field in which missions takes place. And as I already said, it, it's translated, um, and I don't, I don't always understand why the translators have done this, uh, but you'll find it translated nations, you'll find it translated Gentiles. Uh, it can have a range of meaning from, from an ethnic group to meaning basically all non-Jews, right? So, so in the Gospels, there are a couple times where it says, do not go to the Gentiles, but only to the house of Israel. So any non-Jew could fit in that category. Uh, the way the mission is described, though, consistently through the New Testament has two key words that I would use are, are places and peoples. Right, and, and I want to show you in this passage, for instance, how places is demonstrated in, in terms of the spread of the gospel. So look at, look at down, if you would, to verse 19. And notice he says about the work of his mission, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel or fulfilled the preaching of the gospel of Christ. So he names two points on a map, Jerusalem and Illyricum. So uh, we, would, we would call uh, ancient Illyricum modern Albania. So if you're looking at Jerusalem down here and you come up around the Mediterranean Sea, across Turkey, across Greece, up in the northwest corner of Greece is Albania or Illyricum. One way I've heard it described is if you took the boot of Italy and pushed it backward where the heel of that boot would hit is actually Illyricum or Albania. So Paul's talking about the spread of the gospel in geographic terms from Jerusalem around. And that's not surprising, right? If you remember how Jesus talked about the mission when he commissioned them. In Luke 24, he says, repentance in my name shall be preached to the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And then in Acts 1, it's, you'll be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the remote parts of the world. All right, so, so there's a geographic kind of statement about it that emphasizes places. Look at verse 23. It uses the word regions. But now with no further place for me in these regions... And then in verse 24, he mentions Spain. Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in my passing. And then in verse 20, he says, thus I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named. I right, know here's the reason I'm emphasizing this is because uh, starting in the 1970s, there was a really hard push away from places toward people groups. That, that we should only think of the Great Commission as people groups, not places where the gospel would spread. And what I'm trying to show you is that the, the Bible actually won't let us ignore the geographic expansion of the gospel, right? That, that it's supposed to go to every place on the planet under all creation. The gospel is supposed to be spreading out, and that's the pattern consistently mentioned. Even, and we'll see in a moment, when he talks about Macedonia, but you take 
a city like Thessalonica that received the gospel. And then it says, and from you sounded out the word of the Lord into all Macedonia and Achaia. So Paul immediately doesn't say, and it sounded out from you to other people groups. He says, it sounded out from you into the entire region around you, right? There's a, there's a kind of expansiveness to the gospel that keeps going to places where Christ has not been named. The part that's good, though, for us to remember about the word here, ethne, we get ethnic from it, is that it does emphasize something different than what you and I tend to think about with nations, right? If I said to you, it says, go make disciples of all nations, you and I tend to think of geopolitical units, right? The United States is a nation. Canada is a nation. Mexico is a nation. And so we tend to think actually too uh, too far toward the place thing in terms of politics. Countries is the way we think about it. Go make disciples in all the countries. But that's a very modern way of thinking about how the world is, is actually laid out, right? If you, if you actually think about most of human history, it was actually tribes and people groups. They, they, there were clusters of people that spoke the same language and had a shared culture that lived in certain places unless they happened to migrate to another place. Right? I remember years ago, I was going to be speaking for the commencement for Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Minneapolis, and Claudia went along with me, and, and there was some antique store that she had heard about that was sort of famous in... Minneapolis from, from, is it HGTV or whatever? Okay, so HGTV. I can't remember which one it was. I know I was really impressed about it, but so, but I was a good husband, right? So I went along and while she was looking for some specific things, I'm just doing the, you know, husband thing. I'm wandering around and I came back into this corner and there were maps on the wall. There was a map of Africa from the middle of the 20th century, right? looked very different than current existence because those boundary lines that we call the nation were sort of just squashed down on top of things, right? There was alongside of it another one of Europe from pre-World War II which was radically different because of all the changes that happened in World War II, but now we're in the early 2000s, so after the fall of the Soviet Union. So all of those names of places, right? All the names of the places are changed, and some of them reverted back to names that had more to do with the peoples that lived there and the cultures that were originally there and the language grouping. Another way to think about this would be, I've often illustrated it with India, right? Because if I, if I say India, we tend to think of that as a nation. But that would not be a nation biblically, right? In terms of the language that's here, 
there are probably close to 300 different, 380, I think is the number, of people groups that were in that subcontinent we call India, that that nation was formed basically by the British Empire. For instance, when I've gone over there, I've flown into, in South India, uh, flown into Cochin, which is where Santosh George is, and then hop in a car and drive over to Coimbatore, which crosses a state line, and they speak completely different languages. I mean, I know when we go down south, they speak a little bit of a different language, right? But, but we're talking, they can't communicate to each other in their native tongue. The only way they could talk to each other is if they moved to a third language like English. All right, so you have people who are in the same country, but are not of the same ethnic identity in terms of linguistic cultural realities. So someone might go, hey, there's people preaching the gospel in India, so India's reached. And they're not recognizing that there are, I mean, in that case, it's now the largest the largest country in the world, I think 1.4 billion people with 22, I think, official languages, over 180 languages all around, that if the gospel was going to spread there, you would actually have to be look at people groups. That is, what's the, what's the largest cluster of people who share a common language among which the gospel can spread, right? So, so what it does do is it causes us to think better than we're probably inclined to thinking when we think about the mission of Jesus Christ. We should be going to every place for the name of Christ, but as we go, we should be looking for those pockets of people groups which need the gospel in their language in order to come to Christ and have a have a, a an indigenous church movement, right? Where they're actually worshiping Christ and serving him and able to spread the gospel into the region around it. So, so we need to be thinking that way. And I'm gonna come back to that in a moment when I start to, I want to start looking at what Paul talked about here in terms of finishing the task. All right, look now at verse 19, because uh, I'm going to, and I want to, I'm going to try and uh, walk you through this in a, in a kind of a teachy way, but hopefully can, it will make sense to you in it. Look at verse 19. Paul says at the last part of the verse, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, or I have fulfilled the preaching of Christ. And I, I've preached on this before, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make the case for it, but it could mean that the preaching was the fulfillment of prophecy, or it could be the manner in which he preached it. I've, I've fully preached it. Uh, most, I think, and, and I think the best way to understand it is that he's completed the preaching of the gospel. And that's because the word means that, but also look down to verse 23 again. He says, but now with no further place for me in these regions. Some of you may have a translation that says, no room for work 
in this region. So what Paul's saying here, verse 19, I've completed my preaching of the gospel from Jerusalem around Illyricum. In that region, there's no more work for me to do. I've completed my work. And so he wants to leave and go to Spain because he wants to preach, we already looked at this text, where Christ was, was not already named. All right, so in Spain, nobody has preached the name of Christ. Here, the preaching of Christ has been completed. Now, I'm, I'm going to, this is like really quick way to say it, but Paul is not saying that everybody from Jerusalem to Illyricum is saved. And we know that because there's a city called Thessalonica, and Paul writes to them in 2 Thessalonians 3 and says, pray, for, pray that the word Lord spread rapidly and that we would be protected from evil men for not all have faith. So there's still lost people there, but Paul says his work is done. Okay, so his work must not have been just preaching the gospel and seeing people saved. It must have been something other than that. And, and most take that to mean that what Paul had done, what's recorded for us in the book of Acts, was all throughout that region, he had gone to major city centers, had preached the gospel, believers had come to Christ, and were formed into congregations. And spiritual leaders were put in place in those congregations, and now those congregations were responsible to finish the task. Right? The work had shifted from the missionary to the people who had come to Christ. So think, think of the church at Thessalonica. You became a, a model, an example, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord into all Macedonia and The Thessalonians had moved from a mission field, if I could put it this way, to a mission force. They were now spreading the gospel into the region around it. The church at Philippi, Paul talks about them and says he thanks God because from the very first time they received the gospel, you became partners with me in the gospel. That they actually sent more than one offering from Philippi to Thessalonica so that Paul could preach the gospel. The Philippians got it. They received the gospel, understood that they were responsible for spreading the gospel. So Paul planted churches, and then those churches took the baton and carried it forward. All right, that's, that's one element of this. The other element is out over here. I'm going to reverse this. Right? I'm not going to mess with you, but you think this way, so I'm going I'm to work with you, all right? So... So the, the, the element that's over here at the front end of it, just stick with me. I'm confused right now. I'm confusing myself. All right. So Macedonia, Achaia, so Thessalonica, Philippi, that's the region that Paul says he has no more room in. What he wants to go is to Spain where Christ has not been proclaimed. Right, so Christ has not been named there. So, so we at least have two, and I and I actually do want to keep it in this order because actually practically it goes from that kind of a place to this kind of a place. Right. At one point, 
Thessalonica had never heard the gospel. Nobody had named the name of Christ at Philippi. No one had named the name of Christ at Rome. At one point, nobody had taken the gospel to them. But somebody did, and that work advanced to the point so that then Macedonia and Achaia, Paul could say there are healthy churches there that are responsible to finish the job. Okay, It was no longer a pioneer kind of mission field. Now, remember, Paul sent Timothy back to Ephesus, right? He sent Titus back to Crete. So it didn't mean there was no room for any missionary work, but it was actually a kind of missionary work that was aimed at strengthening the churches that had already been established. It wasn't a pioneering kind of a work. It was a strengthening work so that this church, this area would become what we would call reached, right? It was reached. So so let's put it in terms we can understand. You and I don't normally think of the United States as being a mission field. Right? In fact, if somebody showed up and said, hey, I'm going to be a missionary to Allen Park, we'd probably go, what are you talking about? I mean, we're here. And they said, if they said, well, is everyone in Allen Park trusted Christ? We'd go, no. I mean, is, is there room for work? Well, yeah, there is, but not missionaries. It's actually supposed to be our job to do it. We're supposed to keep spreading the gospel into the region around us, reaching people near us, seeing places where there needs to be a gospel preaching church. Think like this. Paul had never been to Colossae, but Epaphras took the gospel down to Colossae to preach it because he was from Colossae. He got burdened about it. Probably while Paul was camped in Ephesus for two years and the gospel is spreading out into all of Asia Minor. Right, so, so there was a base of operation and believers started to say, where do we need to take the gospel next? Where are we gonna move to establish churches in this region? At that point, Paul could say, my job's done. My job's done. Okay, so we've got two clear categories from the text. A place where Paul says, I've fulfilled the preaching of the gospel there's no more room for work for me in this place, right? I, I, I want to move on to Spain. We've got the second category over here, which is the place where Christ has not been named, right? So those two are stated explicitly in the text, but in actuality, there's a third category that's necessary because of the logic of the text. So look, look if you would, at verse 22. Notice the first part of the verse. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. What's the reason that Paul says he's been prevented from coming to them for? It's that the work was not done yet. Right? Because that's his whole argument. He says, I've, I've wanted to come to you but I've been prevented from coming to you because the task was not done here yet. But now there's no more room for work for me here. I've completed my task here, so now I can come. So here's the way that I think is helpful to think about the kinds of mission field or relationship of the places. 
right? There are unengaged places. Places where Christ has not been named. In this passage, it's Spain, right? No one has ever taken the gospel to Spain. And Paul said five chapters earlier, how can they call on someone whom they've not believed? And how can they believe in someone they've never heard? And how can they hear unless someone proclaims to them? And how can someone proclaim unless they're sent? So Paul is now applying his theology from chapter 10 to the needs of the Spanish people. They can't call in the name of the Lord unless somebody takes them the gospel. And so he's saying there are places that have never been engaged with the gospel. But then there's a massive middle ground of people where the gospel is being proclaimed and the people, groups, and place are being engaged, but they're not yet reached. See, because that's what he means. For this reason, my work's not done. So up until he reaches the point where they can be self right? Self-propagating, uh, self-governing, self-supporting. That's usually the way we talk about it in missions. How do you know when a, a church is truly indigenous? It's self-governing. That is, it's not controlled by people outside of it. It's self-supporting. It's, it's not dependent on missionary money. It actually is, is being supported from within, and it's actually expanding. It's It's growing by reaching its own culture, right? We would be an independent indigenous church. We're self-governing, self-supporting, self-propagating. We're not dependent on missionary support. We're not under the control of any outside authority. We, we would be, we would view that as a reached kind of field that should be extending out. But between unengaged and reached are those places that have not yet been, the work has not been completed, the missionary task has not been done yet. It still requires the work of outsiders. It still requires the support of outsiders. It it requires the, the patient in uh, advancement of the gospel and raising up of spiritual leaders, right? So, so those three ways to think about it, right? What would be, what would be the, the way in which you'd look at a particular area, right? So, so practically speaking, the great vast majority of the world fits in the unreached category. Right, over half, probably 60% of the world's population would be in areas where there's probably less than 2% of, of believers and therefore not able to sustain itself and advance the gospel to carry it out. So it's dependent on outside help for, for, outreach and training and advancement of the gospel, right? So let me give you an example, flesh and blood from people we have, all right? Let's just take Asia Minor, all right? 
Is, is Turkey being engaged with the gospel? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've got people there. There are other people there. Has it been reached? <laughs> when you have 72 million people in the country, very generous estimate of maybe 10,000 Bible-believing Christians, right? So that's, if you, you start to do that one out, that's like 0.000018, I think, something like that. All right, so, so it would clearly fit in the unreached category. All right, so, so there is work that needs to be done to see that place and the people groups within that place reached for Christ. It's, it's not been reached. Okay, there's, there's work that to be done. But we have also workers who are out who are going to, they're identifying people groups that are completely unengaged. No one, no one has taken the gospel to them. Right? That's this number, right? Probably like, I mean, I don't know how they come up with all the numbers. I'm just using numbers, all right? There's over 17,000 people groups in the world probably like 7,000 fit in the unreached, 77 or 1,000, probably about 3,000 in the unengaged. Now, numbers-wise, that's probably roughly the population of the United States, though, because now you're talking about pretty small people groups where they're, they're without gospel witness. So think of of the population of the United States, is like 340 million people or so. Those people have nobody even trying to take the gospel into their language to preach the gospel to them. Think about 3.7 to 4 billion people in the category like I just described with Turkey. Less than 2% of the population has a credible faith in Jesus Christ. The church is not healthy enough and established enough to, to reproduce itself. So it's still depending on outsiders to try to help it. And we support a large category of people in that. And then there's a small window down here which would be the people who were a mission field and now have become a mission force, like we would think of ourselves. Are there people still around us that need Christ? Absolutely. But who's responsible for that? The baton has been handed to us, right? We have a responsibility to reach the community we're in and the region we're in while being a part of sending and supporting people who are going to the unreached and praying and partnering with people who are going to the unengaged. A part of what we prayed for tonight was, so, so, so this 3,000, this cluster of 3,000 distinct people groups who don't know the name of Christ, 
Are we going to pray for workers for that harvest? Are we going to pray earnestly that, that God will send out people to take the name of Christ there? Do we have a heart that is concerned about the thing that matters to Jesus? Gathering up people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And, and are we prepared as a reached people to partner with those who are working to, to finish the job among the unreached that are already being engaged and to take the gospel to those who aren't? Right? That, that has to be the grid, I think, within which we think about how do we serve in God's global program to take the gospel to the nations? And, and I think the church at Rome, what Paul charges them, if I could just sort of rattle through this uh, in order to charge us, is to think about it like he talks to them. Look down verses 30 to 32. Paul wants them to pray. Right? And I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So we should pray for those who are pursuing the task on our behalf. Remember them continually before the Lord, striving in prayer. We should provide resources that are needed to do the work. Look at verse 24, because here's what Paul says as he wants to go by them in Rome. Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. So, we, we, should, we should be resourcing them, giving them what they need to take the gospel to these kinds of places. And when we do, Philippians 4 would say, then we are actually having fruit from their labor. Or 3 John says, we become a worker together with them, right? So when we're here in Elm Park and we're praying for the families that are trying to reach those places that have not been reached yet. We're praying for those who are trying to find a way to engage peoples that have never heard the gospel of Christ. And when we provide resources for them, the scriptures say that fruit abounds to our account. We become workers together with them. I mean, that the God knows that we've been faithful to the task, that Jesus wants to do this. And he's called us to not just receive the gospel, but accept responsibility to see it spread where we are and to those other places. And so, so that's what Paul wants the Romans to do. He wants them to participate in this. As well, we should seek to provide rest and, and refreshment and care for those who are on the front line. Look at verse 32 so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. So think of us as the Romans, right? Paul is on his way from one field to another and he's gonna stop in Rome because he, he wants to fellowship with them, but he also wants to receive help from them and to be refreshed by them, right? So, so when God brings our way, people who are working to see the unreached be reached and the unengaged be engaged. A part of what we can do 
that's pleasing to God is be source, a source of refreshment and care for them, to show them the love of Christ, to, to, to be uh, encouraging and lifting them up, letting them know that, that uh, if I could say it this way, it's sort of colloquial, but we have their back in prayer, right? You're not on your own. We're praying for you. We're, we're ready to intercede on your behalf, right? Refresh them in that regard. And as well, I think one of the things that we need, we really need to maintain is that we persevere in the work and word ourselves. Look at verse 14. Uh, Paul wants them, right? He wants them as they're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. He wants them to stay true to the task. You know, one of the things that occasionally I'll, I'll have opportunity to talk with, with missionaries uh, who are, are a little discouraged because churches that at one point were healthy, vibrant churches supporting them are no longer such, right? They come back from the field and they find that the work of God has diminished among the reached, right? And one of the things that we should always have in our heart is that we need to keep the light burning, right? We, 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 we have not finished the job that Jesus has for us, right? I mean, you, 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 where we, I mean, where we sit, right, among four and a half million people, only a fraction of whom know Christ. We, we, we live in a metropolitan area where there are places that do not have any gospel preaching churches among them anymore because of demographic shifts and changes, right? And, and if we... If we basically forget about the field where God placed us, we can talk great about the unreached and the unengaged, but effectively we'll stop being the kind of place that can actually really do anything about these things because it requires a healthy church committed to the work of Christ itself to be the base for work that's going on beyond it, all right? We, we must recognize that the best thing, one of the best things that we can do is be fervent in the task God's given us so that then we can participate in the other things that need to be done, right? When, when is all of this supposed to be done? When Jesus gets back. Right, so as long as he's not here, this work is going on. Because the reality of it is, at one point, Asia Minor was a hotbed of healthy churches. And then you have conquests and apostasy and, and the tide of history. And now a country where the church at Ephesus and Colossae, and Pergamum, and Smyrna, and Philadelphia, and Thyatira, all those churches in Revelation 2 and 3 is now under the shroud of Islam. And people are lost in darkness. And we're kidding ourselves if we think that can't happen where we are. 
And the only thing that's going to stand in the way of that on a human level is people who are bold and faithful with the gospel of Christ, willing to keep doing the thing that God's entrusted us to do. And by God's grace, we need to finish finish uh, the work that we've been given and help others finish the task in these unreached areas. And we need to pray and partner with those who are ready to go for the sake of Christ's name to those places where Christ has not been named. And some of the reason why those places are still not reached is because they might be some of the, the hardest and most dangerous places to go with the gospel of Christ. And it's possible we become so wimpy, we can't stomach that. Right? We're not prepared to make the sacrifices that are necessary to see the gospel go where it is most costly to take it. So we need to pray that God will put it in our hearts to be bold for Christ to be willing to sacrifice for Christ if called on to do so, and to do so with confidence that Jesus wins. He will gather up his sheep. Our job's to take his name and go. Let's pray, please. Father, please help us to not lose sight of this uh, very crucial task that you entrusted to your disciples and said to do until you come back. And so, Lord, please make us faithful. Help us to take the gospel to every place and among all peoples until the end of the age. May that light never go out here, we pray. May we not lose our love for Christ and become ingrown, but help us to constantly look to the fields see that they're white for harvest. Look out and see that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And so we pray for you to send workers into the harvest. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.